0: Turn to Matthew 16 with me this morning. I really love it when we get to passages of scripture where we get to talk about context and we get to talk about locations and actually have some understanding of why Jesus says what he says in the places that he says it because everything that Jesus did and he said was intentional. And this morning's one of those texts where uh, you don't quite understand the significance of what's taking place unless you understand the location that Jesus is saying this in. And so we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning, uh, specifically verses 13 through 23. And so if you turn there with me, I'm gonna read it and then we'll pray and we'll get into it. Verse 13, we're just gonna go through 19 to start and then we'll finish 20 through 23 at the end. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I would give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let's pray. We'll get into it. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering as your church. God, it just does not fall on deaf ears, the fact that it is just a true privilege, God, to be with your people. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, as we open up your word, that you would use your word to speak to us as we speak, as we talk about this text this morning, God. I'm asking that you do the heavy lifting of just speaking to the condition of our own hearts this morning. I'm thankful for a passage like this with this promise that you are building your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what an amazing thing Jesus, that we get to partner with you in watching your church be built on this earth, God. And so I just thank you for the work that you're doing here within our own church and our context in Coeur d'Alene, and I pray you continue to fan that flame throughout all of North Idaho and into our region and our country and the rest of the world, in Jesus' name, amen. So I really want to focus uh, on Peter for the most part this morning. Uh, and, and I want us to learn from Peter by looking what it, at what it is that Peter's actually saying, at, at what Peter's doing, at how he's reacting, and how Jesus continues to kind of press in on him, because I think those things are actually to be true of us as well. And I also want us to see Peter's shortcomings this morning, the things in Peter that, that need to be warnings that we need to see for you and I. But before we dive in there, I want to sort of set the stage and give us some background For this passage. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 13, and I want you to notice what it says. Anybody have paper Bibles? I don't say this enough, but it's really cool when people come with their paper Bibles, hold them up high. Look at that. That's amazing. Yes. That's the way Bibles used to be. Um, Now they have them on these things, but very rarely do people have paper Bibles, so that's cool. So verse 13 begins by saying this, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so I want you to keep that place in mind, Cesare Philippi, and we'll come back to it in a second. But he asks this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so it, it makes sense that Jesus asks this question here in this specific place, because chapter 16 sort of marks this pretty significant change in the earthly, in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Because what happens after this is that Jesus becomes entirely focused on his final journey to Jerusalem, like to lose his life for our sake. And so this passage in Matthew 16 is sort of the end of Jesus's ministry time in Galilee like we've been focusing on. And most of the last handful of chapters that we've read through took place around the Galilee region, around the Sea of Galilee. So what you'll find now is that there's this shift and now Jesus becomes focused on Hyperfixated on his trip to Jerusalem going up to Jerusalem and so as Jesus ends this period of his ministry in Galilee he wants to know from his disciples what the word on the street is what are people saying about me what do people in Galilee think of me like when you guys go out in the marketplace when you walk around town what are people saying about me who are people saying that I am for this sort of dramatic flair Jesus chooses this very specific place to ask his disciples this question Caesarea Philippi so I, I think most of us would agree that 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 where a question is asked is almost just as important as the question itself right like if you think of the one big question that you ask in your life will you marry me When that question is asked, when somebody proposes to somebody, and and let's just say a woman comes to you and she says, I I just got engaged. What's the first question that you ask her? Let me see the ring, right? No. It's, where where did it happen? Like, tell me about the setting. How did that take place, right? And what you don't want to hear is, oh, he texted me right like like he sent me a heart emoji and I knew that it was like legit and real and it was so personal and so deep like you don't want to hear that you want to know the romantic setting like where did this take place how did you do it like there's something really valuable about where the question is being asked and so what does this have to do with this passage and Caesarea Caesarea Philippi why is Jesus asking this question in this place and so I wanna give you a little bit of background on this place, Caesarea Philippi. So Caesarea Philippi sits in the northeast region of Israel, almost about as far northeast as you can get in Israel. So I wanna show you guys a map so you can get a picture of where this is at. Um, So you've got the the Sea of Galilee there, kinda up in the upwards middle section of the picture, and then go up and to the right and you see Caesarea Philippi, right? So this is about 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee that they're going to Caesarea Philippi. It's quite the journey for them to get to this place. So the Sea of Galilee is where the majority of Jesus's life and ministry sort of takes place in that region. And so in this one instance, Jesus literally removes his disciples 30 miles away to go to a very specific place for a really brief time to ask them this specific question. And Its location doesn't just stand out, but this place, like Caesarea Philippi, Philippi, was also one of three places that Herod the Great had built this temple in honor of Caesar Augustus. So if you go to, there's another slide I have up there that shows, yeah, right here, that's perfect. So if you look to the left there, this is an artist's rendering of what the place would have looked like at the time of Jesus. So that temple to the left there was this temple that was built to Caesar Augustus. And it's pretty significant for a Herod to actually build a temple to a Caesar. And so it gives you kind of an idea of what kind of condition this city was in. And then this this Herod the Great wills the city over to his 16 year old son. Imagine this, anybody want a full city at 16? Like what a sweet thing to inherit, right? So he wills the city over to his son Philip at the age of 16. And Philip begins to build this city up as this capital, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. So this Philippi name gets put in there because it was the city that Philip ends up inheriting and he begins to build up. So not only is there this temple here that Philip's dad built to Caesar Augustus, but there's a bunch of other things that take place in the city that make this city stand out from most others. By the way, when I was in Israel, This is one of the most creepy places that you can stand. There's a lot of significance in this location because of what Jesus, the interaction he's having with his disciples and Peter specifically, but it's a creepy place. Um, Go to the modern day picture of the same thing. So that's what it looks like right now. You can still see the rubble there. You can still see where these temples and these buildings existed. And you see this massive hole in this rock, right? So one of the, the, the things that this city was known for was the worship of this god named Pan. Um, this was a primary place that people would come to worship Pan. Some of you have heard of this god Pan. Maybe you've seen pictures of Pan. Pan is often symbolized by a goat, and he's seen as being like a man's torso with a goat's legs. And, and, and there were literally porticos built right to the right of The Augustus' temple that were porticos for Pan. So, for the Greeks, this was the primary place that they would come to worship this god Pan. So, I I, I want you to look again at the picture of the overlay with those buildings. So, that's what it looked like at that time, and then show them again what it looked like today, just so you can see. So, Augustus' temple is built right in front of this massive cavity. So this building to the left, again, this Temple to Augustus, uh, what's behind it that's significant about this place is this massive cavity in this rock. And this hole in the rock face was at one time filled with water. And and people believed that Pan actually resided within this cavity. Like this this hole in the rock face, again, was filled with water. Supposedly, they think that Pan resides in it. And they believe that this hole actually leads to the underground. So they believed it was sort of this gateway into the underworld. And so it, this hole, this cavity where this water was that they came to worship Pan was known as the gateway to Hades, the gates of Hades. So understand that as we get into this passage, that this is what it's referencing. This is the gates of Hades, this this hole. So of all the places in Israel, that again, that we traveled to, this was the creepiest because there were some crazy stuff that go down in this city. Uh, As you hear about what's taken place here in the past, you realize Jesus is crazy for bringing his disciples to this specific city because this was like complete debauchery like as i said before people believe that pan lived in this hole and so in order to appease pan the way that they would worship pan is they would offer up sacrifices to pan and they would throw the sacrifices into that pit of water and if the sacrifice sank then pan was pleased with them if the sacrifice floated then pan was not pleased with them And this wasn't all that they did because also around here are buildings that are built that were specifically built for temple prostitution that were taking place in order to, again, appease Pan. And so there's tons of gnarly, gross, crazy rituals and things that are going on around the city. And so I share all of this to say this wasn't a vacation spot, it wasn't Hawaii that Jesus is taking his disciples to for their kind of last hurrah before they head back it was sort of the first century version of the red light district. It was like Las Vegas. It was literally such an evil place that the Jewish rabbis at this time forbid people to travel to this city. And yet it was this of all places that Jesus decides to use as the backdrop to pop the question of sorts to his disciples. Who do people say? that the Son of Man is. like. Think about what's going on in the city around them as Jesus has this moment with his disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then in verse 14, you get the answers. The disciples said, word on the street, Jesus, is that some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're Jeremiah or you're one of the prophets. And so their answer to Jesus isn't super clear about what people who people think that he is, here's a number of things that people say. And it's not clear whether they think he's like a reincarnation of one of these people that, he, that they name, but what's clear is that people thought rather favorably about Jesus, to think that maybe he was one of those people, especially when you contrast this with the thought of Jesus and and, and how the religious leaders of his time actually viewed Jesus. Like, what was their thoughts of who Jesus was at this time? They said, he does what he does by the power of Satan. But the general populace is saying, like, he might be John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's Jeremiah, he's one of the prophets. But the religious leaders, in contrast, are saying, this guy moves by the power of Satan. And I think it's interesting because it can be similar with us today. In terms of people's perceptions of Jesus, many today might say that he was a good teacher, that Jesus was a moral man, that he was a religious icon, that Jesus was a revolutionary of sorts or a prophet. And yet, in spite of their apparent positivity about who Jesus may have been, Jesus presses in, and he asks this follow-up question in verse 15. What does he say? Who do you say that I am? Not them. Who is it that you say that I am? And this question is huge, because this question sort of, sort of sheds light on the, the, the fact that the, the people's thoughts about Jesus are sort of lacking, The people think he might just be one of the prophets. Maybe, you know, he's Elijah. Maybe, uh, um, you know, maybe he's John the Baptist. But their ideas of who Jesus is are lacking. And even though they say some really nice things about who people might say that he is, Jesus isn't like, oh, cool, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Do you agree with them? He doesn't let them off that easy. What's he say? He says, no. You guys, who, who do you say that I am? he wants to know what his disciples think. And so he says, but what about you? Like, I know what they're saying. I know what the world's saying. What about you? What do you guys think? And Peter responds in verse 16, and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I say this often, but we can jam through passages of scripture and never really understand the full weight of what's being communicated. Because for you and I, we live 2,000 years on the other side. We know the story. It's easy for us to just, know where this all goes. For the disciples, they have no idea what's necessarily about to transpire in the days ahead in Jesus's life. How he's gonna lay his life down for their sake, how he's going to offer salvation to the world is gonna be by laying his life down so that others would find life. And so just so we're all on the same page, this term Christ that's used here, it's not Jesus's last name, right? (laughs) His name isn't Jesus Christ, it's a title that's given to him, Christ. It's a title that means Messiah, like Christos in the Greek means anointed one. It's this term that's used often in the New Testament, but it's also used all over the Old Testament. In fact, it was used 39 times in connection with prophets and priests and kings. And most often it was used in connection with this promised one, The one who would come in the line of King David, who would usher in this earthly kingdom and who would overthrow the kingdom that they were subjected to underneath the Roman Empire. And so their view was that this Messiah, this Christ figure would come and would usher in this military and political freedom that they'd been waiting generations for. And I actually think that even though Peter's answer is better, I think Peter still had at this point the same mindset as the general populace about Jesus, which, which I, I think is more clear a little bit later. But I think that Peter does express this growing understanding of who Jesus is when he says, you're not only the Christ, but you're the very son of the living God. Because Peter understands that there's more to Jesus than just being somebody that's gonna deliver them from military and political freedom. He's more than that. And I think it's at this stage where you notice some characteristics about Peter that begin to stand out. So first look at this. Look at Peter's courage. Like he has the courage that that he, he stands up in the face of public opinion and Peter begins to declare Jesus. He says, I know that's what they're saying about you. But I say that you're the Christ. I say that you're the son of the living God, that you're the Messiah, that you're from God himself. And I think Peter's courage in this moment is the courage that all of us need to have because the question that Jesus asks Peter is a question that he's asking all of you today. I know what most Americans say about me, but what do you say? I know what they're all saying, but what is it that you say? And honestly, even in conservative, evangelical North Idaho, I think Jesus says, I know what most of North Idaho says about me, that they're fairly complimentary of Jesus, but he wants to know specifically what you think. Not what everybody else is saying, but what do you think? And the thing about Jesus is that he doesn't always ask us to share about him in the safety of our living rooms, does he? Doesn't always happen in safe quarters. Oftentimes, Jesus asks us to share uh, our opinion of him in modern day Caesarea Philippi, where we step out of the safety of our home, out of our comfort zones, to go to places where there's darkness and we begin to be the light. It's not just our living rooms, but it's in boardrooms, it's on playgrounds, it's at family gatherings, it's in classrooms, it's at dinner parties, it's on the streets, and Jesus is saying, do you hear what they're saying about me? Are you gonna say anything? Because the reality is that Jesus is making it very personal, like, you know me, you've spent time with me. Are you gonna stand up even when you're at the very cave where the gates of hell lie? And we need to notice what's taking place in Peter's response. Because I don't think Jesus posing this question while standing at the supposed gate of the underworld is, of co- is a, just a big coincidence that he took them to this specific place. In fact, I think it's our mission. Like, this is our mission. Jesus doesn't call us to retreat from places of evil, but to declare that he's the Christ literally in the very center of the places of evil. What do you think of me? And will you say that in the worst of places? Like, we're not to be those that shrink back, right? Like, for we've been given a spirit of boldness and and of empowerment, and we've been commissioned to go out, like, not in our own strength, but empowered by the spirit of the living God in us, out into those places and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ and I believe Jesus is the son of the living God because Jesus didn't send the spirit of God to reside within you and I so that we'd go huddle in safety and hunker down but so that we would do battle on the front lines, amen? Years ago, when I was running the skateboard ministry, there's guys in this room that were literally present for this event. We thought it would be really cool to go to this this trade show called um, ASR, it was like action sports retail. It was like the largest trade show in the, the action sports industry. Skateboarders, surfers, snowboarders. Like you go to this trade show, all the pros are there. All the brands are there. All the big wigs in the industry are there. And we were living in San Diego at the time and we all thought, wouldn't it be cool to go be present at this trade show? Like we could, let's walk around, let's prayer walk around the trade show. Let's go there and be the salt and the light. And so in preparation for this, we thought, what about taking a bunch of Bibles with us and handing them out to people? And so we, we go to this trade show, and um, Thomas Nelson donates 750 Bibles for us for this three-day period. Thousands of people kind of converge on San Diego for this trade show. And it is like complete debauchery for three days. I'm not even lying. It's the gnarliest of the gnarly. Like, you walk away from those experiences thinking, These are the people that kids are looking up to and basically worshiping as icons and then you watch them behind the scenes and you watch the tastemakers and the people that are creating the things that all the kids want and you think, disgusting. It's the craziest place to be for a few days. And so we take this handful of skateboarders, teenagers at the time, handful of us, and we go to this trade show and there's magazine racks on racks out in front of the foyer at this trade show where they just put every magazine you can think of in the action sports industry and they would just fill the racks with magazines. And people as they're going into the trade show, the trade show would just grab every magazine. And so we thought, we'll wait for the stacks of magazines to run out and then we'll sit in the corner and we'll run out and we'll put a stack of Bibles in in that place and then we'll go sit in the corner and we'll just watch. And so these Bibles said, Holy Bible on them. We stamped them with Borders for Christ. Like it was obvious what this was that they were picking up. And in three days, we handed out 750 Bibles. People took them. Like people were walking through the magazine rack. They grabbed Transworld Skateboarder, you know, a snowboard magazine. And then they'd grab this Bible and they'd sit and look at it. And they'd thumb through it almost like, is this really what it says it is? And then they'd add it to their stack and then they'd leave. And we were pumped, we were just like kind of going renegade sitting in the back watching this happen. Well, two or three months later, we get this phone call at our office and this woman says, "Um, I'm a marketing director for this company that at the time was sort of like the Zoomies of Canada. So they had tons of stores around Canada. And um, she says, I just needed to call you guys and let you know what, what happened. I was at the trade show for my job, I was walking, through the foyer i was picking up a bunch of magazines and i saw this bible and she said and so i was intrigued by it and i just grabbed it and i took it back to my hotel room and that night i just started to read it and she said i gave my life to jesus in my hotel room as a result of getting that bible And for years, we had, like, relationship with this woman. She would fly out to events that we did, and she'd be part. Like, it was just awesome to see what God was doing. But I say all of that to say, like, we as believers have to converge on the Caesarea Philippi's of our day. We have to. And I'm not, this isn't a bash against North Idaho, but when we hide out in North Idaho, it's really easy to find people that think like us, act like us, talk like us. And we really as believers should be praying, Jesus, where are the Caesarea Philippi's that you're sending me to? Where are the places of darkness that he's literally called us as the light to go stand and confess Christ as the son of the living God in? And so I, I want us to, the, the second characteristic of Peter that I want you to see this morning is his confession. He says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And so I'm reemphasizing this a bit But I want you to hear it in light of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. And notice here what the end goal is. In light of what Peter just confessed, this is how John ends this passage, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Is that not cool? And so I don't want us to only see Peter's confession as this declaration of belief, but it's sort of this on-ramp into eternal life, right? This is written so that you come to a place where we go, he's the Christ, he's the son of the living God, and it's this open invitation for us to enter into eternal life. And so do you see why Jesus asked this question twice? Because for for you to see Jesus any other way than as the Christ, as the son of the living God, is actually to see Jesus as less than a savior, which is what he was wanting them to know him as. In fact, to see Jesus any other way is to see Jesus in terms that are nothing short of heretical and blasphemous. He's God. Like anything less than you are God is a statement that makes less of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want our flattery. He wants our hearts. He wants our confession because it's our confession of who he is that leads to eternal life. And so it's very important, church, that you get this. So you see Peter's courage. You see his confession. And what I also want you to see is his sensitivity here because he's got this sensitivity to like the, the revealing work of God that's going on within him. And notice what, what Jesus says of Peter in response to Peter's confession. Jesus says this blessing over Peter in verse 17, blessed are you Peter, blessed are you Peter because your confession, your confession what's it say? Actually evidences the work of the Father in your life. There's something going on in Peter. That his confession is evidencing what God is doing in him. And so by declaring this, Jesus affirms Peter's answer. Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Peter. And just notice what he says, you're blessed because my father, Peter, the the father that you speak of, the the one who who, who you call me the son of, my father, revealed this to you, Peter, You're blessed. You're blessed because you didn't come to this conclusion on your own, Peter. Something else was working in you to bring this about in you. Neither would we come to this conclusion on our own. None of us comes to the Father unless what? The Father draws us. It's him that's doing that work. And so no one declares that Jesus is the Christ except for by the power of the Spirit of Christ within them. That's how he draws us, and so if you believe, you've been blessed. The Father literally drew you. The Father literally revealed Jesus to you. You've literally seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Is that not amazing? And so I I want us to realize that, 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 that we're not passive players in this faith journey that you and I are on. If you've been studying through the book of Matthew with us, one of the key themes that I hope you have picked up on the way is that there's this contrast in Matthew's gospel between those who are hard-hearted and then those who are receptive to what Jesus is actually revealing to them. Those that are sensitive to what Jesus is speaking to them by his spirit and then there's those that are so hard-hearted and cold that they've literally locked their hearts off to them. And and I wonder about those of us who give off the air of sort of seeking after God, but in our heart of hearts, we're literally willfully resisting him because of what it will mean for us to step out into belief. We just continue to resist him because we know the statement that's gonna be made to all if we step out. And the reality is that that's only something that you as an individual can answer this morning. Jesus is asking you that question. Who do you say that he is? I also wonder about those those of us who, who claim to believe and yet we're consistently saying things like, I don't hear from God. Like I never hear from him. Even though the voice of God is heard through what? His word, you have it. What do you mean you're not hearing from him? You have his word. The voice of God is heard through godly wisdom. It's heard through godly counsel with other believers that the spirit actually gifts us through his word and through others as well as even through his daily provisions in our life. How many of you ate this morning? How many of you got up this morning? He allowed air to pump in your lungs. Some people are about to lose a lot of that today, right? You have it. Jesus afforded you this great opportunity to be alive today. And yet for us to say, like, I don't hear from God, is like, what are you missing? He's speaking all around you. Dallas Willard said it like this. He said, perhaps we do not hear the voice of God because we do not expect to hear it. Then again, perhaps we do not expect to hear the voice of God because we know that we, because we know that that we fully intend to run our lives on our own terms and have never seriously considered anything else, something to consider perhaps. A fourth thing that stands out about Peter's life is this, not so much just in this passage, but I want to talk about Peter's role in general. If you look at verses 18 and 19, it says, and I tell you, you you're Peter, he says, and he says, on this rock, I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Interesting, right? They're literally standing at the cave in Caesarea Philippi called the gateway to hell and Jesus makes a statement, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a cool illustration that Jesus has pinned for them as he's giving this this word to them next to this cave, like for them to know what that cave is and for him to say, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like everything that's going on back there will not have a lick against my church. And there are a few, um, or then he goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a few verses in the Bible, um, there's very few that are as hotly debated as these two passages here. And this debate sort of rages on today, like, who is Peter? Like, what is Jesus actually saying about him? And what are the keys to this kingdom? What is this rock that Jesus speaks of? And there's three popular opinions that, that I'll share with you this morning. One is that this rock that he talks about, understand, he gives Peter the name Petros, which actually means rock. And so some would believe that the rock that, that Jesus is speaking of is Peter, like, the, he's the rock that he's going to build his church on, which makes sense. I mean, like, Jesus does change the name of Simon Peter, Petros, to Peter, which means rock. You are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so, that's one opinion. Unfortunately, that opinion gets skewed, and that's how Catholicism has sort of ended up where it's at, when they actually look at Peter as their, their, their first pope, right? They almost worship Peter and the saints, because in their eyes, like, Peter is the epitome of all of this. The second one is, that, is this, that there's people who go, like, I don't like the, the whole idea of Jesus building the church on a specific person. And so it's not on Peter that he's building the church. It's actually on Peter's confession. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That's what Jesus is referring to which also kind of makes sense because the church will be built up only when people come to a place of belief that Jesus is the Christ, then they enter into eternal life. And the third perspective is this. There are people that say it's not Peter and it's not his confession, it's actually just Jesus. And it's only going to be Jesus because Jesus is the rock, the rock is Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Jesus is the cornerstone And not only the cornerstone, but the very foundation of the church. And so for some, it's got to be Jesus. And to think it's any other way to them is almost heretical. So what people really want to know is what I believe, right? Um, It's really hard to read a passage like this and not think that Jesus is talking directly to Peter, is what I'll say. I, I tend to think that Jesus is probably referring to Peter to some degree, especially when you look at the role of Peter in the life of the early church. Like Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But then Paul goes on to say that the apostles and the prophets were a foundation, but that Jesus is what? The cornerstone. They were a foundation, but actually everything started with and from Jesus. And so I agree that the church is built by the confession in Jesus, and that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and I totally agree as well that Jesus is the ultimate foundation of the church, and Jesus Jesus makes it really clear in verse 18 that it's his church. It's not Peter's church, it's his. And so, wherever you want to land, you can go ahead and land there. But we're not Catholics, and we don't see Peter as the Pope, right? So, but what can't be debated from this passage are two things. One the promise that Jesus will build his church, and I want you to hear that this morning. He is and will build his church. And two, that literally the gates of hell will not stand against it. He'll build his church, and the gates of hell won't stand against it. And then I want you to notice what's given to Peter, because Peter is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this is where the debate sort of goes on, like what are these keys? What are these keys that have been given to Peter, these keys to this kingdom? And so here's how my simple mind works. What do keys do? They open and close. They lock and unlock, right? What do gates do? Gates keep people in or they keep people out, right? When you're behind a gate, what are you? You're bound behind a gate, you're locked in. And when a gate is open, you're loosed, you're free. If a gate's closed, how do you open a gate that's closed? You unlock the gate. What do you need to unlock the gate that's closed? A key. So put it all together. Like, like Peter, I'm building my church and I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what is it that frees people from the gates of hell? It's the answer is the gospel. And what is it that keeps people in bondage through their whole life? It's the rejection of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, Peter, I'm literally giving you these keys, what are the keys? The keys are the gospel message of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you this, Peter. This is what frees people, it's what opens up the gates of hell, it's what lets people loose. But on the other hand, if they reject this, they stay bound. And the amazing thing in the life of Peter is you get to Acts chapter two, you get to the day of Pentecost, right? And Peter preaches, the rock literally preaches, right? And what does he preach? Peter preaches the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then what takes place after Peter preaches the simple message on the death and resurrection of Jesus? The church is built by 3,000 people that are added to the 120 that already existed. 3,000, because Peter steps out in this confession and talks about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus promised the church would be built through the keys that have literally been entrusted to Peter. And in Acts 2, it sort of comes to fruition. But I want to challenge you with this this morning, Anthem. What we also need to understand about the keys that have been given to Peter, the authority that's been entrusted to Peter, it's actually ours as well. We also have been given the same keys. We've been given the keys with the same authority and the message to say to people, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, think about that. What an unbelievable amount of authority. But the reality is that we also have the authority to say if people do not come to Jesus, people remain bound. And we want you to come to Jesus because we want you to be loosed. Which brings us to verse 20. Jesus says this. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And sadly, sometimes I think this has become the life verse of the current church. (laughs) Don't tell anybody. Keep your mouth shut. This is like one of those verses where you kind of step back after reading what we've read, and you go like, what? Like, keys, loose, build, (laughs) then this? Like, keep quiet? Like, why does Jesus instruct them to keep quiet? And I think it's simply because their view, like the, the disciples' view, along with most others at this time, was incomplete didn't understand exactly all of who Jesus was. It had not been revealed to them yet. And so Jesus instructs them to say nothing, like say nothing about me. And I have this thought this week, Anthem, that there's only one thing worse than not sharing Jesus at all. And that's sharing a version of Jesus that's not actually him. Which I think the church is really guilty of sharing a version of Jesus with the world that isn't actually who Jesus is. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, but not the type of Messiah that Jesus came to be. And so instead of being this revolutionary liberator that they thought they were getting, Jesus was the suffering Messiah. And that's something that that even his own disciples had a lot of difficulty fathoming. And that difficulty sort of shows up in the last three verses of this passage. The last thing I want you to see about Peter in this passage is Peter's failure. Look at verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so I want to end this morning by having you notice this word must in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Why must Jesus go to Jerusalem? Why must he? And the reason is because of what he promised in verses 18 and 19. What did he promise? The promise of the church being built. Death and Hades being defeated. These keys being given. All of these resting on Jesus' suffering, his dying. Jesus raising again. Like it must be this way. It must be this way for the only thing that will unlock the gates of hell and loose those that are in bondage is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. It's the only thing. It has to be this way, and it has to be this way because this is the Messiah that Jesus came to be. This is the Messiah, this suffering Messiah who came to die and conquered death through his resurrection. That's who we are to declare to the world. That's who Jesus wants us to share. And if you're not ready to share that Messiah with the world, then I think Jesus would rather you just keep things to yourself. That's the Messiah that, you, that this world needs to know about. We need to be the ones, church, that'll stand up and preach this message that there is the possibility of freedom and liberation in your life. And it's not going to come through the channel that you thought it would come through. It's going to come through this Jesus that willingly laid his life down so that yours and I would be saved. And so here's Peter, the one who seems so firm and so steady in his earlier response And then now, the same Peter becomes the stumbling block, and the reminder for you and I this morning is that Jesus is building his church, and not even our fallenness will get in the way of his plan, right? Isn't that a cool thing? Like, you can't get in the way of what he's doing and what he's building. The gates of hell can't even prevail against what Jesus is doing. And so we can take a deep breath this morning knowing that his church will grow and it will be by the power of God and that you and I have a choice to either partner with him or to get the heck out of the way and let him continue to do what he's doing because he's going to do it anyway. But who do you say that Jesus is this morning? And if you agree with Peter, are you willing to say it near Caesarea Philippi? Are you willing to go there this morning? Are you willing to go there with your life? Would you guys stand with me? As we spend some time worshiping here, this is an opportunity for us to respond. It's an opportunity to take God's word, to literally overlay it over our hearts and our lives and say, Jesus, is there any place that I need you to compensate for my lack? Because I don't know about you, as a pastor sometimes, I'm always scheming in my head and trying to figure out ways to build his church always trying to figure out what are we going to do and how are we going to do it and can we do this and can we do that and you're like trying to dream up the greatest marketing plan that ever existed that's going to lure God's people and at the end of the day, it does not matter because he's building his church through you and it's through the message that you're going to proclaim that you're going to confess to the world that he's Jesus Christ and that he's the son of the living God and you can't confess that unless you don't already believe it yourself to begin with. So as we spent some time worshiping this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe he's more than just Jesus Christ, but he's actually God? Do you believe that he's more than just a Messiah that wants to come and help make your life better? That he's actually a God that despite whatever happens in your life, that God wants to actually step in and grant you his peace and strength and the ability to wade through the worst-off situations like the gates of hell in this world to know that even as those things come against you, it won't have power over you. Amen? When you pray with me, Jesus, I thank you. Um, Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing. God, I thank you for this tremendous gift that we have in you. And this morning, God, I pray for each person in this room as they confess to you, as they bear their hearts to you. This morning, God, you know the the intricate things that are going on in people's lives and their marriages and their relationships. Lord, you know what they're dealing with right now and I pray that they would invite you in Jesus and I pray that we would not be a hindrance, that we would be a people that would acknowledge you and let you have your way and not be a people that try to allow our pride to get in the way to make things happen ourselves or become a hindrance and try to step in and even say your way is wrong. Jesus, we thank you We thank you, God, for your salvation. We thank you for the gift that you've given to each of us. And I pray today, God, that there be those in this room this morning that may receive that gift from you as they confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that you are God and that you um, died and that you rose again, Jesus. And I pray that there be some in this room this morning that would find faith and peace and eternal life in you. In Jesus' name we pray.